I saw some uh, with a book uh, that I've written called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. That's mostly about personal spiritual disciplines, those activities found in the Bible by which we experience God and grow in grace, but which we do alone. There are also interpersonal spiritual disciplines, those we practice with other people. So when we pray alone, that's a personal spiritual discipline. When we pray with the church, that's an interpersonal, corporate, congregational spiritual discipline. When we worship God privately, that's a personal discipline. When we worship with the church, when we learn together with the church, these are interpersonal spiritual disciplines. The two most important personal spiritual disciplines are the intake of God's word and prayer. And in that order, where it's more important for us to hear from God through his word than for God to hear from us in prayer. But with both of these most important personal spiritual disciplines, there is an almost universal problem. With the intake of the Word of God, it tends to look like this. And it's true even among our most devoted daily Bible readers. They take their Bible, read uh, a chapter, maybe read three chapters, read ten chapters. But most days, if pressed, as soon as they close their Bible, they would have to admit, what? Yeah, I forgot, don't remember a thing I've read. Well, uh, that's an almost universal problem, I believe. And there's a simple, permanent, biblical solution to that that I'm not here to talk about today. (laughs) That's another conference. But with the second most important personal spiritual discipline, the intake of, I mean, uh, uh, prayer, there is likewise what I believe to be an almost universal problem and it looks like this that when we do pray we tend to say the same old things about what the same old things and when you've said the same old things about the same old things about a thousand times how do you feel about saying them again bored yes thank you I think it takes courage to admit that that we can be talking to the most fascinating person in the universe about the most important things in our lives and be bored to death. Not because we don't love God. Not because we don't love who or what we're praying about. I would contend that if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the problem there in prayer is not you. Rather, it is your method. And we're inclined to believe it's just me. There's something wrong with me. I am a second-rate Christian. I don't want prayer to be this way. I try for it not to be this way. But frankly, when I do pray, it is that way. There's something wrong with me. And as I said, I believe if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the problem is almost certainly not you. Rather, it is your method. Now, that's a very important caveat. Because I think the problem frankly, in most evangelical churches and most Southern Baptist churches is the church member without the Holy Spirit, the unconverted church member. I mean, by our own self-counted, self-reported statistics, two-thirds of Southern Baptist church members, even in normal times, not related to COVID, two-thirds of church members will not be in church on the Lord's Day, giving biblical reason to at least question their salvation, right? Now, only the Lord knows But the Lord himself has told us, by this we know we have passed out of darkness into light because we love the brothers, right? And if they don't love us enough to ever be with us, 
Well, that's reason to at least question their salvation, right? If you don't think so, try that on your spouse. You know, I love you. I don't care if I ever see you again, but I really love you. Well, they would question that love, right? But uh, we're talking about people who've made, gone out of their way, made a profession of faith, be baptized, and become members of, of churches, uh, but don't demonstrate a love for the brothers. If a person is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, they're born again. Remember, that means two people live in your body, right? You do, and another person, not a force, but the second, third person of the triune Godhead, the person of the Holy Spirit, lives in your body. We have an expectant moms here today. Three people live in your body. And that other person who lives in your body is not passive, right? Just like an expectant mom. There comes a point where she realizes something's going on, something's different. Oh, there's another person living in my body. And eventually, everyone knows there's another person living in her body. The same is true when the person of the Holy Spirit indwells your body. Because when the Holy Spirit indwells any flesh and blood creature, he brings his holy nature with him. Just like when you walked in those doors, you didn't pause at the door and say, hmm, now which nature should I bring in with me today? How about my alligator nature? No, you, you didn't do that because you don't have an alligator nature. You have only a human nature. And you bring your human nature with you wherever you go. Wherever the Holy Spirit goes, he brings his holy nature. And when he indwells any flesh and blood creature, he brings his holy nature, and he is not passive. So in other words, there, there's evidence, there's fruit of his presence. You have new holy hungers you didn't have before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You hunger for the holy word of God you used to find boring or irrelevant. You hunger for fellowship with God's people, not mere socializing. That's talking about news, weather, sports, work family, politics, which is good, healthy, and normal. The godliest of Christians do a lot of socializing. That's, that's good, healthy, and normal, but it's not koinonia. You've heard that word before, translated fellowship. I, I prefer the word koinonia in this case because when I say fellowship, I think the picture that comes into our minds is socializing with other Christians. But koinonia is talking about God and the things of God. And the Holy Spirit gives you a, a hunger for that. You just can't go very long without talking about God and the things of God. That's one of the things we, we miss most when we can't be here, is talking about the Bible and what it means and how it applies and hearing about answers to prayer and hearing about opportunities to share the gospel and and marvelous providences and God at work. We, we long for that because of the work of the Holy Spirit. He gives you new holy longings you didn't have before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You long to live in a body without sin anymore. You long to live with a mind no longer attracted to sin and temptation ever again. You long to live in in a holy and perfect world where there's no more racism, there's no more terrorism, there's no more pandemics, there's no more masks, hallelujah. 
And you long to live in that holy and perfect world with holy and perfect people. What Jonathan Edwards called a world of love. And you long, because of the Holy Spirit, you, you long to see it last, face to face, the one the angels call holy, holy, holy. And these things are the heartbeat of all those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. And one of the things the Bible says he does in all those in whom he dwells is he causes us, both Romans and Galatians tell us this, we don't merely choose this, he causes us to cry out, what? Abba, Father. We have this fatherward orientation, this heavenward orientation when we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Abba, Father. In other words, all those indwelled by the Holy Spirit really want to pray. And yet, while that impulse is pressing against one side of your soul, colliding with that is your experience. And our experience is, I want to pray. I believe in prayer. I try to pray. But frankly, when I pray, it's boring. So I guess it's just me. There's something wrong with me. I am a second-rate Christian. I don't want it to be that way. I try for it not to be that way. I go to conferences on prayer, read books on prayer. Go back to prayer, remotivated, revitalized. But basically, it's saying the same old things about the same old things, but with just a little more oomph behind it for a while. But pretty soon, that evaporates away, and we think, here I am again, right back where I was before, now feeling guiltier than ever. Because I'd gone back to prayer so recommitted. It's not going to be this way anymore. So I guess it's just me. There's something wrong with me. I am a second-rate Christian. I'm telling you, I think that's an almost universal feeling. We try to pray. Our minds wander. Five to seven minutes feels like an eternity. You, you come to yourself and say, now, wait a minute. Where was I? I haven't been thinking about God for the last several minutes. And you come back to that mental script in your head that you've repeated so many times and you pick it up where you left off. But because you've repeated it so many times, your mind begins to wander again. And as I said, five to seven minutes feels like an eternity and we feel like failures and think, I don't know what it is. Just something is wrong with me. I'm a second-rate Christian. That's the way prayer is for me. Well, I don't think the problem is that we pray about the same old things. In fact, I think that's normal. To pray about the same old things, I would contend is normal. If I sent you out right now and said, just spread out all around this campus and pray by yourself for 10 minutes, when we came back and talked about it, I think nearly every one of us would say we prayed pretty much about the same, the same six things. Your family. Some family-related prayer, somehow or another. Spouse, child, parent, grandparent, sibling. You'd pray about your future. Some decision that's before you, perhaps. Should you make that job change or not? Should you make that move? Should you not? You'd pray about your finances, most likely. God's provision for those bills, for that car, for school, but something financially related. You'd pray about your work. If you're a student, full-time student, I'd pray about your schoolwork, whatever it is you spend most of your waking hours during the week doing. Obviously, you're going to be drawn to pray about that. You'd probably pray something about your church, your ministry, some ministry you have, maybe someone you're trying to share the gospel with down the street, 
or at work. And then you'd pray about the current crisis in your life. Statistically, I'm told each of us goes through a pretty significant life crisis on the average of about every six months or so. I don't know about you, but if that's true, I'm about 10 years ahead uh, right now. But it's, it's on the order of magnitude so that when you go to pray, it's one of the first things that pops into your head. You, you don't need any prayer list to remember to pray about this thing. Okay, I mean, it might be a good thing or a bad thing. It can be a job change you want or one you don't want. It can be a birth. It can be a death. But it's, it's the kind of thing that you don't need a prayer list to remember to pray about it. It's on the front page of the headlines of your life. Well, if these six things dominate your prayer life, cheer up. You're normal. Because if you're going to pray about your life, these things are your life, aren't they? I mean, think about it. How much of your life has no connection whatsoever to your family, your future, your finances, your work or schoolwork, your church or ministry, Christian concern, and the current crisis? That's your life, right? And thankfully, these things don't change dramatically very often, do they? You're probably going to have the same family tomorrow that you have today. Probably going to have the same job tomorrow that you left on Friday, right? Well, let's just put all that together. If you're going to pray about your life on a daily basis, and these six things are your life, and these six things don't change dramatically very often, well, that means you're going to pray about the same old things most of the time, right? That's normal. That's not a problem. That's normal. The problem is we tend to say the same old things about the same old things. And that's boring. And when prayer is boring, you don't feel like praying, do you? You don't feel like praying. When you don't feel like praying, you know what you tend not to do? (laughs) You tend not to pray. Because you know in advance... You're about to do something that's going to be boring. When you know in advance you're about to do something and you know it's going to be boring, you don't feel like doing it, do you? Your kids don't come to you and say, Mom, hurry up with supper. I can't wait to get to my math homework. In fact, just forget supper. I can't wait. No, you have to make them do it. Why? Boring. So when you know in advance you're about to do something, even if it's prayer, you're pretty sure it's going to be boring. We don't feel like doing it. And if we don't feel like doing it, we often just have to make ourselves do it at best. And when we do, our minds wander most of the time. And we feel like failures. We feel like second-rate Christians. If you feel that way, be assured, I, I think almost everyone feels that way. And it's real easy to become like that little girl who used to go to bed every night saying that same sweet colonial memorized prayer, now lay me down to sleep. But one night she thought, why does God need to hear me say this again? I've said this every night for all these years. So one night she just decided to record it into her phone and play the recording every night when she went to bed. Now, you're laughing, but some of you have prayer recordings in your heads. They're just a little more sophisticated than that, right? 
Aren't there people somewhere in your background, somewhere in your family, somewhere in your church history, that when those people are called on to pray, you could give their prayer, you have heard it so many times, right? I've, you know, preached in something like 46, 47 states. I hear the, I hear the same prayers all over America. Lead, guide, and direct us. Bless the gift and the giver. Hide the pastor behind the shadow of the cross. I mean, I hear the same prayers <laughs> all over America. It's like beads on a string. Here's the red bead, green bead. I bet the blue one's neck. Yep, there it is, you know. But maybe it's totally different here. Maybe it's the red bead, then the green bead, then the blue. But it's the same prayers, right? Aren't there people that you know somewhere when they're called on to pray, they stood up to pray and, and dropped dead in the middle of their prayer. Eight other people could stand up and finish their prayer. They know it so well. Right? And that's a, that's a way we learn to pray. Consciously or not, we pick these phrases that just click for us. They, they stuck and we string them together and that becomes our prayer, especially our public prayer. And it's bloodless and, and lifeless and heartless. And we know it, but that's the way we've learned to pray. We don't know what else to do. Because we can't think of anything else to say, really. And so we feel like second-rate Christians, but we soldier on. Saying the same old things about the same old things. Feeling like failures in prayer, assuming that we are the problem. We're second-rate Christians. What's the solution? Well, I would contend that whatever it is, it must be fundamentally simple. Why? We're fundamentally simple. That's right. And who's we? That's right. Who's we? All of us swear. In the church where? All over the world, right? God has children all over the world, doesn't he? From 9 to 99. Low IQs, high IQs. Very little education. A great deal of education. Very few Christian privileges. I was on a mission trip once to the bush country of Kenya. Not even the pastor had a Bible. And then there are people like every person in this room and every person hearing this with many Christian privileges. You have an opportunity to go to a church where the Bible is preached. You realize there are a lot of places... Well, that's not true. I mean, in your state, my state, you don't have to go very far. If you lived in one of the small towns, you know, frankly, the Bible's not preached anywhere in that town. But you have choice of churches where you can hear the Bible preached. But if a person lived in some remote area that within reasonable driving distance they can hear the Bible preached, well, <clears throat> they can turn on Christian radio or they can hear the Bible preached. During the week, a lot of it on there isn't Bible preaching, but they can hear that on Christian radio. And if they can get on the internet, they can hear Bible preaching, you know, the Bible preached 24-7. Even by guys who are dead. You've got Christian books made available to you right here in your church building. But if someone went to a church that wasn't possible, there are Christian bookstores within the area, some of which sell Christian books. 
But if a person didn't live near a good Christian bookstore, if, if they can get online, they can have almost any Christian book they want tomorrow if they pay overnight shipping. And if they have an iPad or a Kindle, you can have almost any Christian book you want in your hand in 30 seconds. And I could go on and on. Every one of these Christian privileges is available to every person hearing me right now. And so if you, with all those Christian privileges, which is really, there's no one in the world that really has many more Christian privileges than you. And I mean every one of you. Almost no one in the world has more Christian privileges or advantages than you do. With all those Christian privileges, if you can have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life, then what about our brothers and sisters in the middle of, of India, middle of China, who have none of your Christian privileges? Are you prepared to say they can't have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life because they don't have your Christian privileges? No, none of you would say that. None of you would say, well, Whitney, that, that makes pretty good sense to me. I, I guess if I, with all my Christian privileges, if I don't have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life, and frankly I don't, well then, that pretty much eliminates the possibility for every Christian in the world. None of you would say that. None of you would say that. You say, look, I don't know about Christians in India. I don't know about Christians in China. I just know about me, right? I just know that when I pray, frankly, it's fun. So I guess it's just me. Something wrong with me. I am a second-rate Christian. In fact, now that you put it like that, that with all the Christian privileges I have, I still don't have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life. I'm worse off than I thought. I'm a third-rate Christian. I'm, I'm worse than I thought. Boy, I'm glad I came this morning. Got up early, paid for the privilege of being told I'm a third-rate Christian. I'm worse off than I thought. Great, thanks for having this conference. No, I'm dwelling on this for a reason. Hopefully to persuade you with the biblical logic that anything God invites all of his people to do, despite all the differences among us, has to be fundamentally. Do you see that? If he invites, indeed commands, all of his children all over the world to pray, and yet we've got so many differences among us between age and IQ and intelligence and Christian privileges, but we're all to do the same thing, it has to be fundamentally simple, right? Do you see that? Do you see it must be doable by you to have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life? Regardless of what your experience up until this point tells you, regardless of how well you think you know the Bible, regardless of how well you think you can remember the kinds of phrases you ought to use in prayer, regardless of all that, it must be doable by you have a meaningful, satisfying prayer life. So what then is the simple, permanent, biblical solution to this almost universal problem? Well, here it is. When you pray, pray the Bible. Especially a psalm. 
Now, I don't think I heard anyone go, and that's good. It's not the job of any Bible teacher to try to communicate something new and clever. It's our job to communicate the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But I do believe this is something that, though taught evidently in Scripture, is often overlooked. But it's extremely, extremely simple. Let me uh, demonstrate it for you by asking you to turn to the 23rd Psalm. And I'm going there because I trust most of you are familiar with it. And so, imagine you've done your Bible reading, and you say, I'm going to pray now. And I think I'm going to pray based upon what I learned at the conference at church. I'm going to pray a psalm, and I think I'm going to pray the 23rd psalm. We look something like this. You read the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. And you pray something along these lines. Lord, I thank you that you are my shepherd. You're a good shepherd. And you've shepherded me all my life. But, oh, great shepherd, would you shepherd my family today? Guide them into the ways of God. Guard them from the ways of the world. Lead them not into temptation. Deliver them from evil. Oh, Lord, I pray you'd make them, you, you'd make them your sheep too. They would love you as their shepherd as I love you as my shepherd. And would you shepherd me in this decision about my future? Lord, do I make that job change or do I not? Do I make that move or do I not? Lord, shepherd me into your will. And I pray for under-shepherds at the church. Please shepherd them as they shepherd us. And then when nothing else comes to mind, you go to the next line. I shall not want. Lord, I thank you I've never really been in want. I haven't missed many meals. All that I have, all that I am is from you, Lord. And yet I know it pleases you. I bring my desires to you. So, Lord, would you provide those finances that we need? For those bills, for that car, for school? Or you know someone who is in want? And you pray for them. Maybe it's some of our persecuted brothers around the world. Or maybe it's someone within your church. But you pray that God would provide for them. They are in want. Then when nothing else comes to mind, you go to the next line. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And frankly, what comes to mind is, Lord, I pray somehow you'd enable me to lie down and take a nap today. Or the idea of the green pastures reminds you of the feeding of God's flock in the green pastures of his word. And that prompts you to pray for a ministry that you have of feeding God's flock in the green pastures of his word. Or someone who feeds your soul in the green pastures of God's word. When's the last time you prayed for someone in this church who teaches the Bible to you. Then maybe at this point your mind begins to wonder, 
Your phone dings. A dog barks. Something distracts you. That's going to happen. But now you've got something to come back to. It's easier to refocus. You've got the very next line. He leads me beside still waters. And you pray something like this. Lord, do lead me in this decision about my future. I want to do what you want me to do, Lord. I'm just not sure what that is. Lead me, Lord. Lead me into your green pastures, into your will. Lead me beside still waters. Quiet the anxious waters in my soul about this decision, about the future. Quiet the waters in our home. Quiet the waters wherever they need to be made. Quiet. And then, nothing else comes to mind? Well, again, you've got a place to go. The very next line. He restores my soul. Oh, Lord, you might pray, I come to you so spiritually dry today. Please, please restore to me the joy of your salvation. Or maybe you think of that person you're trying to share the gospel with down the street, and you pray God would restore their soul from darkness to light, from death to life. And on and on you would go through this passage until either A, you run out of time, or B, you run out of psalm. And if you run out of psalm before you run out of time, you know what you do? Now pay attention, this is high-level seminary stuff here. If you run out of psalm but you still have time left, here's what you do. You ready? You just turn the page and go on, right? I require my students once during the semester to spend Four consecutive hours alone with God. First day of class, when I mention that, you should see him go, you know, what am I going to do for four hours? After I've taught them how to do this and how to meditate on Scripture, most of them spend the entire four hours just alternating between those two. And when they write about the four hours in their journal, nearly every one of them for 25 years has said they spent more than four hours. Not because they had to. They were enjoying it so much they didn't want to stop. See, if you've got four hours, you just keep turning the page. You never run out of anything to say. And best of all, let's go back to where we started all this. That prayer is unlike any prayer you've ever prayed in your life. Pray the Bible You never again say the same old things about the same old things. See that? You just go through it line by line, talking to God about what you see there in the text. And you don't repeat yourself. You don't have to think up anything. That prayer is going to be unlike any prayer you ever prayed in your life. You never again say the same old things about the same old things. See how easy that is? Anybody can do that. You don't have to remember anything. You don't need to look at any notes. All you need is your Bible. Just go through it line by line. Talk to God about what you see in the text. If nothing comes to mind, 
fine, skip it, go on to the next verse. If you don't understand the next verse, fine, skip it, go on to the next verse. You may understand the next verse perfectly, but it just doesn't prompt anything to pray about. Fine, go on to the next verse. Anybody can do that. You'll come to those imprecatory psalms, right? Oh, Lord, dash their children's heads against the rock, smash their teeth in their mouth, and cause them to dissolve like the snail into the slime. Well, I don't know. You might pray that one way or the other during the Kansas-Kansas State game. No, I don't think we put people's names in there anymore. I think ultimately we, we, we put all of the psalms in the mouth of Jesus. Someday he's going to do far worse to his lifelong unrepentant enemies and just smash their teeth in their mouth, isn't he? Well, let's make this real life. Let, let, and I, I, sometimes I put the enemies of my soul in there. Pray that God would do that to these sins that come out of this sin factory that beats in my chest, that he would destroy those things like that. Ultimately... We're saying, Lord, I'm on your side. I want your righteousness to be exalted over all. I want all opposition to you to be crushed forever. Let's make this real life. Let's say Tuesday, you're trying this. You come to one of those imprecatory sections, and you say, now that, that guy from the seminary told us how we could pray about these sections. I forget what he said. Fine, skip the whole section. There's nothing that says you have to pray over every verse. There's nothing that says you have to finish the psalm. I was doing this once in Santa Rosa, California. Gave people a chance to try it. One woman prayed 25 minutes and she never got past, The Lord is my shepherd. Five words, she prayed 25 minutes. Now, do you really think the Lord was up there going, ah, You didn't finish that song? No, I think he was delighted that she could talk to him 25 minutes about being her shepherd, don't you? But the very next day, she might have been in Psalm 22, where there's 31 verses. And maybe with 31 verses, only half a dozen things came to mind. Fine. Turn the page. Guys, you really can't mess it up. You really can't mess it up. Now, that's meant to be a pastoral encouragement. To people who are sometimes fearful, you know, I just, I don't know the Bible well enough. I might misunderstand something. I pastored about 15 years in an area where people, most of the people grew up in a religious situation where they were implicitly and sometimes explicitly told, oh, you don't need to get in the Bible. You let us tell you what it says. You might misunderstand. We're the professionals. We'll tell you what it means. You, you might misunderstand. So I had people who came who are actually, you know, afraid to get in the Bible, afraid they'd misunderstand and mess something up. No, no, we want everybody in the Bible as much as possible. Just go through it line by line, talk to God about what is there. If you don't understand it, fine, go on to the next verse. You really can't mess it up. Now, I want to make a distinction between what I am advocating and what I'm not. And just about every other kind of coming to the Bible I can think of, 
reading it for understanding, interpreting it to teach to other people, you, you can mess that up. And our first responsibility then is what does it say? What do the words actually say? And then what do those words mean before we talk about applying them? And boy, you can mess that up. But that's not what we're doing here. With what I'm advocating, our primary activity is what? We're praying. And we're praying while occasionally looking at the Bible. And I'm just advocating using the vocabulary of the Bible as the vocabulary of your prayers. Taking words that have already circulated through the mind and heart and God and circulating them through our minds and hearts back to God. Just letting His words be the wings of our prayers. Using Bible language in our prayers. And I'm convinced if people will pray that way, their prayers will be far more biblical than they ever would be not using the Bible. Making up their own prayers. And that's what we said earlier we tend to do, right? We make up our own prayers. Which is okay, but it tends to lead to problems. It tends to lead to saying the same old things about the same old things. And words without variety tend to become words without meaning. Bored. There are some people who say, well, you know, you just tell people to pray what they see there in the Bible, they, they, you know, they might come up with some heresy. Well, let me say I've never known that to happen. Second, I'd quickly admit it could happen. But third, if it did, Paul writes to Timothy and said it's the job of the spiritual leadership of the church to gently correct such a person. And I'd much rather have that job gently correcting someone who's in the Bible and trying to understand it than someone who's not using the Bible to pray at all. In my first pastorate, we had a, a prayer emphasis and we went to Deacon's home one night to pray. We knelt, we began to pray. He knelt and prayed, Oh Lord, make us free in the spirit. I said, Amen. And then he said, And make us free in the flesh. I reached over and almost hit him, you know, when he said that. Man, don't pray that. That's the problem around here. That's the way people pray when they make up their own prayers. And I guarantee you they're going to pray amiss if they just make up their own prayers. But when people pray the Bible, the words of the Bible shape their prayers. It shapes the words of their prayers. It shapes the theology of their prayers. And over time, they understand both the Bible and, and theology better. They become more biblical in their praying. And can you think of any better way for people to understand the true meaning of the text than to pray over it verse by verse? If they don't have any other helps, any other things, just them and their Bible, than to pray over it verse by verse? I think as people do that, they will, their prayers will conform more and more to the Bible. And so that's why I want to encourage you to say, that you may feel like you know the Bible least of anyone in this church. You can do this as, as well as also the person who knows the Bible best, the, the, the one who's least mature, the one who's most mature, the one who's been a Christian the least amount of time can do this, the one who's been the oldest Christian here can do this. You may have led someone to Christ this morning at breakfast, brought them here. This is the first time in their life they've ever been in a church building. They've never read one verse of the Bible in their life before this morning. They could do that this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. Um, 
um, Lord, please shepherd me as I grow as a Christian. He got it, right? He got it. Now, he's probably going to skip over a lot more verses than most of you will, but he can do it. And over time, he's going to skip over fewer and fewer verses because he's going to be learning the Bible as he reads it and prays through it like this. So that's why I want to say anybody can do this. You may feel like, I, I, I don't know the Bible. I, I know it least than anyone in this building. You can do this. A six-year-old who can read can do this. Anyone can do this. All you have to do is open your Bible and talk to God about what you read there. See how easy that is? You don't need to remember any notes, any outlines, anything. Just open your Bible and talk to God about what you see there. Even if, now listen very carefully because this is potentially the most misunderstandable thing I'm going to say today. Even if what comes to mind has nothing to do with the text. Now let me defend that statement from the text of Scripture. What does the text of Scripture tell us to pray about? Everything, right? So everything that comes to mind as we look at the Bible is something we ought to pray about anyway, right? So let's, let me give you a... a Obscure example. Let's go to that psalm that says, Oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? And your friend, Mark, comes to mind. What should you do? Pray for Mark. You know that verse isn't about Mark. It was written 4,000 years before Mark was born. Besides your friend, Mark is a noun. That's a verb. Pray for Mark. That's why I say you really can't do it wrong. Whatever comes to mind, pray about it because I think what will come to mind most of the time is going to be closely related to the text. But no matter what comes to mind, pray about it because whatever it is, the Bible says to pray about it anyway. We're to pray about everything. But as I think people pray through the text, their prayers are going to be conformed more and more to the Bible and less and less about things that they just make up. You just go through it line by line. Talk to God about what you see in, in the text. Now, I want to um, inject a little math into your prayer life here. And I hear some groans about that. And what we're going to do here is not original with me, but here's why this is helpful. Learning this simple thing will help you avoid this. Oh, man. Oh, so sleepy today. So I press solve like I learned at the conference. All right, so here we go. All right. I don't like that one. No, I used that one the other day. All right, you're already going downhill, right? You're already losing momentum. This helps. This helps you avoid that. So this is based on the idea that we have how many Psalms? 150, generally 30 days in the month. That divides out five times. In other words, if you read five different Psalms every day for a whole month, end of the month, you would have read the whole book of Psalms. Well, that's great. I know people who do that. It's not really what I'm advocating. What I'm suggesting is that you quickly scan five psalms, take 30 seconds, 
and pick one. And that's the one you pray through on that day. Now, the hardest part of this is figuring out what day it is. If you can figure out what day it is, you can do this. So, pretend with me today is the 15th. I know it's not, but I can't change this slide every time I do this. Okay, so <laughs> pretend with me today is the 15th of the month. On the 15th of the month, what do you think the first psalm is you look at on the 15th of the month? Brilliant, 15th. Because theoretically, today is the 15th of the month, and the 15th psalm is the first one we look at. So we get the next one by adding 30. Why 30? 30 days of the month, that gives me 45. So now I've got two psalms, right? Start with the day of the month. In this case, theoretically, the 15th, that's the day of the month. And I add 30 to get the next one. I've got 45. How many am I looking for? Just keep it up then. 30 more is 75. 30 more is 105. 30 more is 135. So those five numbers in gold are the five psalms of the day. Whenever the day of the month is the 15th, whether it's the 15th of January, the 15th of February, the 15th of March. If it's the 15th, those are always the five psalms of the day on the 15th. And you just quickly scan those five and pick one. Now, what do we do on the 31st? Well, my students usually give me smart out of cancers, like take the day off or <laughs> something like that. But we use Psalm 119. Now, Psalm 119 is going to come up on the 29th, isn't it? Because on the 29th, the psalms of the day are the 29th psalm. Add 30 is 59. 30 more is 89. 30 more, here it is, 119, 30 more is 149. But even if you use Psalm 119 on the 29th, you'll probably have plenty left over uh, for the 31st. All right, so you know I am a professor. Pop quiz class, what are the Psalms of the day today? Why 22nd? Today's the 22nd. What's next? Why 52nd? At 30, what's next? 80 seconds, what's next? Uh, no, a bunch of you hesitated on that one. <laughs> you go up to three digits, it's a little tougher. It's good for your math, though. And, yeah, so those five psalms are the psalms of the day on the 22nd of the month. Every month on the 22nd. And I'm advocating you just quickly scan those five and just pick the one that stands out. And it's uncanny how one of them will just jump off the page and grab you by the throat. And so the benefit of that is twofold. First of all, as I said, it gives you a place to go. You're not aimlessly thumbing through your Bible. You got a place to go. In fact, you got five places to go. So the second benefit is you got variety. You've got variety. Another benefit is over time, it systematically exposes you to all 150 songs. And they're all equally inspired. They're not all e equally easy to pray through. But they're all equally inspired. So this gives you some variety. Gives you a place to go. But you still may say, I don't care. I hate math. Am I going to do it? Then don't worry. You can let your brain rot. There's an app for that. <laughs> and it's free. It's called Five Psalms. And... 
it automatically will open up to the first psalm of the day, Psalm 22. And you just swipe 52, or you can punch the buttons uh, down at the bottom uh, to take you across. And you can even add the chapter of the Proverbs for the day. So, brother in California, you'd read my little book on praying the Bible. There's a, an appendix in the back. Uh, many of you have the book there, I think, and with a chart for the Psalms of the day. He's a software programmer. He said, I could come up with an app for that. So he did. He said he can always tell when I'm teaching on it. It'll go days with no downloads, and then boom, 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 boom. You know, it'll be like 50 downloads in one minute. But, but go get it if you want. So that will help with the Psalms of the day. But here's why we focus on the Psalms of the day. It's because the Psalms are the best place in Scripture, really, I think, from which to pray Scripture because of the nature, the purpose of the Psalms. They're the only book of the Bible inspired by God for the very purpose of being reflected to God. You'll know, right, they, they were the psalm book of Israel, the song book. God inspired the, song, the psalms so we would give the psalms back to God. It's as though God said, I want you to praise me. If you have my spirit, you'll want to praise me. I want you to praise me not because I'm an egomaniac, but because... There's nothing in the universe more praiseworthy than I am. And if you praise anything more than me, ultimately it's dissatisfying to you and leads to your destruction. So because I love you, I want you to praise me. If you have my spirit, you'll want to praise me. But you don't know how to praise me. You don't know anything about me unless I reveal it to you. I'm invisible to you. What kind of praise is true? What kind of praise do I accept? You don't know. So here. Sing these songs. This is true praise. I accept this praise. That's what God did by giving us the Psalms, right? He gave us the Psalms so we would give them back to God. God gave us the Psalms so we would give the Psalms back to God. It's the only book of the Bible inspired for that particular purpose. That's why I think it's the best place in Scripture from which to pray Scripture. I almost never go anywhere but the Psalms when I'm praying the Bible. Someone has said, I think it was Luther, who said that the Psalms uh, are like a little Bible. Every doctrine in the Bible is in the Psalms, either in the bud or in the flower, but they're all there. Someone else has said there's a Psalm for every sigh of the soul. Wherever you are on a given day, you're exhilarated with God or you're angry at God or anything in between. 150 psalms, there's one that, that well, the 150 psalms, the entirety of the human experience is found there. God not only inspired 150 psalms, he preserved 150 psalms for these thousands of years because they represent the entirety of the human experience. And so that's why if you'll quickly scan five psalms, just take 30 seconds. It's uncanny how one of them will put into expression exactly what's looking for expression in your heart, but you didn't know it until you read that song. So I think it's the best place in Scripture from which to pray Scripture. But very quickly before we break, let me take you to what I think is the second best place to do this, and that's a New Testament letter. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 to illustrate 
what it would be like to pray through a New Testament letter. Now, I could have taken you to Romans 8, but you're familiar with that. I could have taken you to 1 Corinthians 13, but you're familiar with that. And that would be like Psalm 23, cherry-picking one that's really easy to use. But in real life, let's say next Thursday, you were to pray through a New Testament letter, it's it's probably not going to be as easy as Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 13. If you took every chapter in a New Testament letter and lined them up, you don't know most of them, and I don't either, as well as Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 13. So let's make it like real life. But if the Psalms are the best place, what do you think would be the real life reason that a given person next Thursday might decide, of all places, to pray through 1 Thessalonians 2? What do you think the reason would likely be? Yeah, it's just their daily Bible reading. Next Thursday, they happen to read 1 Thessalonians 2 and said, you know what, that really ministered to me. I want to go back and pray through what I just read through. I don't have time to go anywhere else, in fact, but this, this ministered to me. I, I'm going to pray through what I just read through. But whatever the reason, if I were to pray through 1 Thessalonians 2 today, it would look something like this. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. I would pray, Lord, I, I pray that my coming to Blue Valley Baptist would not be in vain. I don't want to come all the way out here and waste their time or waste my time. Lord, I, I pray that there would be much lasting fruit come out of this time together. No one would walk out of here saying, well, that was in vain. That was a waste of time. Oh, Lord, let there be much lasting impact come out of this time. Then, I'd go to the next line. But though uh, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi's, you know, or what two things stand out already? Suffered, shamefully treated. Maybe that's you. You're suffering. And you pray about that. Or you know someone who is, some persecuted brothers or sisters. You pray for that. Or shamefully treated, that's you. Or you know someone and you pray for them. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Oh, God, give me the boldness to speak the gospel to that person at work or down the street despite conflict there's been between us. Or, Lord, I pray for boldness for missionaries, for believers in those persecuted places despite conflicts with the government or false religions. Enable them, Lord, to speak the gospel with boldness. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive. And you know someone who's coming under error. And you pray for them to be delivered from that. Someone they're watching on television or someone else who's influencing them, you pray they'd be delivered from that. Or impurity. You pray about your own temptation to impurity or some family member. Or any attempt to deceive. And you think of some young woman perhaps being deceived by a young man or vice versa. And you pray about that. Well, if you were to pray like that through this chapter, how long do you think it would take you to pray through that chapter? Quite a while, right? But you wouldn't run out of anything to say, would you? And let's go back to where we started. That prayer is going to be unlike 
any prayer you ever prayed in your life. Pray the Bible. You never again say the same old things about the same old things. And you don't have to remember anything. You don't have to look at any notes. You don't have to come up with anything. Just look at your Bible. Go through it line by line. Talk to God about what comes to mind. And that will be different than any prayer you ever prayed in your life. See how easy that is? Anybody can do that. Anybody. So the reason why the New Testament letters are the second best place is because you get so much crammed into almost every verse. Almost every verse suggests something to pray about. But finally, let's, let's talk about a, a narrative passage. So go quickly to John chapter 5 because if, if we're going to pray, if we're going to learn to pray through the Bible, pray the Bible, we have to pray through a narrative passage because that's the biggest part of our Bible. What is a narrative passage? It's a story, right? That's the biggest chunk of the Bible. All those Old Testament stories, the Gospels are mostly narrative. The book of Acts, largely narrative. But guys, there's one big difference between what we've learned thus far and what in praying through a narrative. Thus far, we've looked at the text microscopically. The Lord is my shepherd. Five words. Someone prayed 25 minutes over that. A moment ago, we saw even in between the commas in 1 Thessalonians 2, we saw matter for prayer. But in a narrative passage, you have to back up and get the big picture. Because if you try to pray microscopically over a narrative passage, well, it, it looked like this in John 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Well, you have to come up with something. It might be about feasting or confessing you feasted too much, right? But it wouldn't be easy, would it? No, what you're going to do is look at all nine verses in this narrative. See, in a narrative passage, you usually have these big, broad brushstrokes. You have these stage-setting verses, after which comes the punchline. It may only be the punchline in the narrative that you pray about, not all the little details leading up to it. Now, any little detail leading up to the punchline, if it prompts something to pray about, pray about it. I mean, you read this after this, there's a feast of the Jews. Maybe you think about some Valentine banquet coming up, you know, or, or some big important meal coming up in your life. You should pray about that. My guess is most of the time you read that line, nothing's going to come to mind. And that's okay. In a narrative, you pray about big ideas, not so much about little details leading up to it. But once having done this, I'm confident you can open up to any part of your Bible and pray through that, through that portion. 